Welcome to the Modern Art Notes podcast. I'm Tyler Green. This week, Safe Azuz. The Institute of Contemporary Art San Francisco is presenting Safe Azuz Cost of Living, an exhibition of paintings, sculptures, and installation that considers settler colonialism and gentrification as related processes. The exhibition is on view in San Francisco through May 19th. Azuz is a Libyan Yurok artist based in suburban San Francisco. His work, which often addresses nature, land, and California Native American cultural practices, is in the collections of museums such as the Fine Arts Museums of San Francisco, the de Young, and the North Carolina Museum of Art in Raleigh. He was a 2022 SF MoMA Sika Award finalist as well. On the second segment, Mariam Tagavi at the Museum of Contemporary Chicago. Two quick reminders, each week we feature the Instagram handles of our guests on the show page at manpodcast.com, images too. And if you enjoy the show, please remember to give us a five-star rating and a review wherever you download it. Thanks very much. Safe as zoos after the break. The Museum of Fine Arts Houston presents Kehinda Wiley, an Archaeology of Silence. This new body of work from Kehinda Wiley, one of the world's most celebrated contemporary artists, is on view in Houston for the first time. Through his large-scale paintings and sculptures, he confronts the silence surrounding systemic violence against black and brown people. He uses the visual language of the fallen figure with reference to Western European historical art and iconic portrayals of heroes, martyrs, and saints. In the artist's words, quote, the new portraits depict young black men and women in position of vulnerability that tell a story of survival and resilience, revealing the beauty that can emerge from the horrific. This exhibition is on view through May 27th, 2024 at the MFAH. Visit mfah.org slash Kehinda Wiley to learn more. Artist, author, activist, educator. Witness the groundbreaking practice of Faith Ringgold in Faith Ringgold American People, opening at the Museum of Contemporary Chicago, November 18th. This comprehensive retrospective features over five decades of the artist's works, which detail the complexity of life in the United States and radical social change from the civil rights movement to today. Plan your visit at mcachicago.org. It's the Getty Villa Museum's 50th anniversary, and you're invited to celebrate with a year of captivating exhibitions. Now on view, check out Sculpted Portraits from Ancient Egypt, presenting vivid sculptures of officials of the court and priesthood. On April 10th, discover the mighty deities, brave heroes, and fantastic beings that adorn the terracotta vessels of the ancient Greeks, the Maya in Central America, and the Moche of Northern Peru in Picture Worlds, Greek, Maya, and Moche Pottery. Then on November 6th, explore the ancient land of Thrace, comprising present-day Bulgaria and parts of Romania, home to a tribal culture that produced superb gold, silver, and bronze works used in aristocratic pursuits, such as warfare, horsemanship, and banqueting. From ancient artifacts to lush Roman-style gardens, there's always something beautiful to discover at the Getty Villa Museum. Plan your visit and book free reservations today at getty.edu. And we're back. Safe as zoos. Welcome to the Modern Art Notes podcast. Hi, Tyler. Thanks for having me. I read in an interview you did with the Poetry Society maybe a year or so ago. And in that interview, you said that your work, the purpose of your work was to question the structures and frameworks that we believe to be true. What are the structures and frameworks you interrogate in this new show in San Francisco? The show in San Francisco is looking at how interconnected gentrification is to so many of these other if I'm if I'm thinking about the structures, I'm thinking about these ideas of ownership formed by colonization. I'm thinking about how much money is put into policing. I'm thinking about where the budget is going within San Francisco. And then I'm thinking about how those things are connected to displacement in the city. And I think it's hard to be in San Francisco and not realize how many people are being pushed out. It has one of the highest cost of living. So for this show, I was thinking how how everything is interconnected. What are the historical precedents for those present events that most interest you? I think the, the gold rush is maybe a starting point, and that's coming out of San Francisco. That waves from here up to the area where the Yurok Reservation is, where a lot of my family are, and how that's connected. So 
And then to bring that back, how the gold rush is also implicated within San Francisco. And then that kind of pursuit of material ownership and capital and how those things are intertwined. Do a little history telling for us. What is the relationship between Northwestern California? You know, the, you know, people picture a map of California, the extreme upper left. What is the relationship between there and the gold rush, seeing as, it, seeing as the gold was mostly in other parts of California? I think a lot of people came to San Francisco looking for, looking for land, looking for wealth. And I know a lot of people came over when they heard about the gold rush. And then up in kind of the Witchpeck, Klamath River area, a lot of people came from San Francisco, came west in the pursuit of gold. And then you start to have a bunch of like hydro mining and other processes that are introduced and then affected the ecosystem over there. And I think a lot of the base for the investments in that was coming from San Francisco as kind of the the larger hub city where a lot of people migrated to. Northwestern California is and was also particularly thick with very large trees. And I don't remember the exact numbers, but this is going to be really close. In the mid 1850s, thousand board feet of wood sold in Boston for two bucks. And in San Francisco, it sold for 60. In some ways, in many ways, timber was as valuable and for a longer period of time in California than gold was. And it also just takes more to more industrial process and more displacement and more settler colonialism to access and remove timber than it does to remove gold. And as a result, the impacts of the California genocide on the timberlands, especially in the northwestern part of the state, were far more long-lasting, far more extensive, and in many ways far more destructive than in the gold mining regions all of which I strongly suspect you have noticed. Yes, absolutely. I appreciate you bringing up timber as well. This is probably a good time for me to ask. There was there's an historian of the of the Mendocino area coast who said that the for, for northwestern California timber and timber was gold. That, that there's no we should understand California in a more complicated not only gold gold rush way. Probably also a good time to ask you what what your ancestral background is and what your personal connection to Yurok land is? So my mom's side of the family is Yurok Karuk, and my mom and family live in Wichpus, Wichpec in Northern California. So that's 30 miles up the Klamath River. And then Wichpus means where the rivers meet. So that's where the Klamath and the Trinity Rivers meet. And then I have family kind of up and down the river. So that is where I've spent a decent amount of my time. And then also my dad's from Libya. So I have kind of two intersecting backgrounds and I live in the Bay Area. The Klamath River is one of the most interestingly shaped rivers in, in California. It kind of goes in every direction. It doesn't like flow east to west like so many California river does. It, rivers do. It, it kind of goes everywhere. And then in terms of the genocide, particularly in the 50s, 60s, and 1850s, 1860s, and 1870s, few parts of California ha are, are, are as well documented in terms of the events um, and impacts of the genocide as the Klamath River region. How and when did you begin to put together in your own mind, and then of course, having done that, informing your own practice, the relationship between the California genocide, dispossession, and displacement from the 19th century, and what happens in, say, the 21st century in urbanity such as San Francisco? I mean, I think that as far as it relates to my practice, that started happening much later. But I think as a parent, it's like I, I can think back about how these areas were when I was a kid. And then now that I'm taking my kids there, like how different they are now. So I've started to see just within the 36 years of my life, like, the incredible impacts on the river, what logging's done in terms of deforestation, how little of the like aquifers and creeks and springs are there that were there when I was younger. And then in terms of my practice, that kind of happened over time coming out of college in 2013. I, mean, I didn't grow up in, in art necessarily. Like I grew up surrounded by making and craft from both sides of my family. And my dad was an artist and my mom made work jewelry work and so did my grandparents but I approached art in the beginning from like a 
like a skateboarding and cartoon graphic kind of perspective and then started to formulate from there. So I think I started to shift my perspective from my original work, but like the work I was making in college was very much trying to like reclaim these racist trope cartoons. And then those didn't feel great to me or they didn't feel like true to what I was trying to articulate. And then I started thinking about kind of the land as this conduit for talking about like resilience. I think those conversations started to intersect more and then to where I was living. And you started painting nature and, and for a number of years now you've had, I think a really distinct, immediately identifiable way of painting nature. So nature and plants and flora is evident in your paintings, but you aren't painting kind of the European-American constructions of North American nature. You know, we're not getting those kind of Claudian pastoral scenes or compositions. There's no Emersonian metaphor or address in your works. How have you thought through how you wanted to portray nature and what nature should look like in your paintings? For me, I was maybe most interested in the feeling of when you're in those spaces. And I think that for me, where I live and where my family live, being in nature and being on the land is so important and just intertwined to what what we do and how we live. So I was more interested in just like portraying a feeling. And then I think a lot of the time I'm also thinking about kind of the work that my mom and other community and family members are doing and what plants are coming back and how fire is having the effects on the land. And and also when I'm when I'm out with my kids or with family and walking around seeing the effects of like invasive species and looking for indigenous species and seeing all of those things intertwined. So to shorten the answer, I think it's more about the the feeling in the space. But there's also different series where I'm maybe kind of thinking about things in a different way. Like the earlier work, I was very much recalling spaces as I remember them being that are no longer maybe there in the same way. And then there's some other species or some other sets of paintings where I'm starting to formulate them based on spraying pigment over invasive species. And that's kind of like the act of removing these invasive species from the land and then also putting them into the work. And then these latest bodies of work have been more washy and kind of like intertwined with each other. And I've been kind of interested in just that maybe not the strict delineation that existed in the previous work and having everything feel like it's meshing into each other. I want to come back to plants in a moment. You mentioned fire. What is the relationship between flora and anthropogenic fire, I guess, both historically and in your, in your interest migrating into the work? I mean, I'll give background. So my mom and other family members are part of an indigenous nonprofit women-led indigenous nonprofit called Cultural Fire. So I've been able to see a lot of behind the scenes and also like my family has always been burning. So what's been interesting in following along with what my mom is doing and other people are doing is to see the effects that fire has on the land to bring back like traditional foods, traditional basket material, and also to get rid of invasive species. So for me, I've been interested in like what native plants that were dormant are starting to come back after the burns. And for me, it's somewhat of a documentation to then put those plants back into the paintings. And then fire is also, I mean, historically, you know, if you're looking at maybe, I'm going to be wrong on the year, but after the, say, 1850s or so, they start to get rid of fire. And then we see the effects in the land. So they thought natives were burning the land down, but really, you know, they're they're taking care of ancestral food gardens, they're taking care of basket material, and they're also taking care of like the animals, the water, and that they're all interconnected. Yeah, um, making sure springs to continue to exist in a certain place, for example. Yeah, absolutely. So for me, fire then became such like a like a conduit of conversation to talk about the resilience of indigenous communities to talk about the indigenous of people, but also the, like, the resilience of the land. So in your paintings, plant forms and plants are immediately recognizable. I mean, a viewer sees things that clearly reference leaves and, and, and plant forms, but there is a real flatness and sharpness to how you represent plant life. What plants are you referencing and using and portraying in your paintings, and why are those modes of making leaves and plants not only i guess of interest to you but i mean you've been painting them that way for quite a number of years now three or four or five 
You know, I hadn't I hadn't thought about that at any point, to be honest. And I, if I'm to look back, I would maybe say like graffiti in my past in terms of like the hand and the actual rendering of something. And I don't know, to be honest, I hadn't, I hadn't thought about that, but I very much started from a background of like line based work and it took a long time to get out of that. So I think that that transferred into how I'm rendering the plants now, but I'm also oftentimes thinking about kind of like grasses, willow, ferns like monkey flowers and different plants that are coming out. And I, I guess that that's how the hand is transferring them. You, you, you use, make, whatever the word is, plants and paintings. And then they often also exist in your shows and in your work in sculptural forms too, either like in a standalone form, such as in, in a work at the ICA San Francisco, or in previous shows you've done as kind of, I don't know, growing on or around cattle fences. At some point, you must have realized that the way you devised of painting plants translated to sculptural objects really well, and you doubled down. Yeah, I, it was definitely a decision. Also, I started off as a painter, so I think the way that I'm approaching sculpture is often in a painterly way. But then also, the plant itself became such like a important like standalone moment or stamp of just talking about kind of resilience and talking about it, whether it's the people or or the plants in that these indigenous plants as I'm seeing them like coming back being dormant still existing and then all of the labor and unseen labor that goes into maintaining those things so they very much appear everything and, or everywhere and have I mean have become a really important part of my practice I would say so the other thing about plants and for that matter fire in your paintings is that the colors you use are like super artificial, super assaultive. Your works from like 2019 could be almost fluorescent or maybe actually fluorescent and clashing, the colors would clash. And once the viewer adjusted to that kind of assaultive color, then leaf forms would become visible. In, in the more recent work, including three or four paintings up at the ICA San Francisco, the colors aren't fluorescent anymore. They're just like really industrial and artificial, you know, turned down tonally, but every bit as artificial as those fluorescent colors. Why did you move on from those bright fluorescent colors? And why did you like the tonally turned down, but just as fake colors you use now? I don't know that it was a conscious decision. I mean, it, it existed for sure the to separate those, but I, I was using those very fluorescent colors. And I think if I speak to the artificial nature of it, it's just using acrylic, which is just plastic and is very much like artificial. But I think that in the work that's more recent, I think that people were starting to talk about the work as being like surreal almost and talking about this other way of kind of talking about it that I didn't like initially. And then I've tried to make a more conscious effort to maybe be in conversation with the histories of landscape painting in terms of like the, the colors I'm using and the tonal palettes, but then still have them feel maybe very much different and kind of cross into abstraction. A great example of that is two paintings in the show that are hung together and read as a single canvas, even though they're not, where there are lots of greens, but the green that is least naturey is the green you use to paint the plants. <laughs> is that an example of what you were just describing? <laughs> yeah, I would say so. And then for that specific painting, I'm also those paintings are looking at memory, so they're thinking about what the space was prior. So the dog patch area used to be uh, like salt marshes and marshland. So dog patch neighborhood of San Francisco, where the ICASF is. Yeah. So I think that when I'm thinking about memory, and maybe this ties to the other paintings, I'm able to pull from like different different palettes and ways of recalling things that don't have to be so um, like immediately representative of something that's happening now. So those paintings are. If I go into talking about those paintings, those paintings are looking at what that area would have been, and in theory, after water continues to rise, like what the dog patch neighborhood will be. And then I think that if I talk about those paintings a little bit more and connect them to previous work I've made, the majority of the painting is happening on the back. And I kind of like, if I was thinking about the work my mom does and other people like fire practitioners are doing, there's so much labor that goes into maintaining the land that's unseen and similar to what you were talking about in, in other areas. So like the majority of the paintings in the ICA 
I would say 75% of the mark making and color buildup is happening in the back. And then there's just a little bit of line happening on the front that then starts to blend into each other. So by the back, you don't mean pictorially in the rear of the picture plane. You mean on the back of the canvas surface. Yeah. So for most of these paintings, I'm, I'm starting with a little bit of a little bit of brushwork and like kind of forming composition on the front. Or I'm starting with like a pour on the back, but I would say most of it is, yeah, building up the color on the back and then flipping it over, pouring some, flipping it back over, waiting to see what comes up, flipping it back over, pouring on the back. And then over time, I'm starting to get these areas that are coming to the front. And I like that that's one creating depth, but then also for me, metaphorically kind of talking about like the amount of labor that's going in unseen to like making these landscapes, especially the ones in the ICA. I think that those very much speak to like, landscapes that have been more like fire has been more involved so they're not overgrown whereas some of these are very much overgrown these ones are kind of like just these grasses that are there and maybe they've been tended to and then you have this kind of like pushback looking over the bay as i saw it so just to be clear for people who haven't seen your work on walls you make sure the stuff is the paintings are hung on walls you are not trying to show the viewer both sides of a canvas and wooden support you're hanging a painting on the wall just like you know rembrandt or whatever right now i am there's there's instances that i'm thinking about in the future where you're getting to see the labor in the back and then you're getting to see what's in the front but right now that is how they're displayed and i think that you know the paintings serve as that flat surface that kind of start to build up the atmosphere and then the sculptures start to work as a way to uh then like place the viewer inside of the space that i'm trying to create We'll talk about wood in a minute, but how do you get fire into the paintings? It depends. In some work, the fire has been in the paintings through the use of charcoal, which is gathered from the burn sites. And then in other instances, it's the color palette. So those kind of like very bright, so by, yellow wrists. So by burn sites, you mean out in nature? Yeah. Like I'll, I'll have my mom gather them or I'll go up there and gather them, get charcoal that kind of came from the process. And are there specific colors or specific ways of building or using color that you think of as being a fire move, a fire representation? Anytime there's like the yellow, orange, red, or any of those, I'm starting to think of those as very much being representative of fire. So if I think about the ICA show, you have those two green ones, and then to the right, you have the ones that are very much I'm thinking of as fire. And I think that... When I'm looking at fire, it's also California has had so many really intense burn years where there's just like fires taking over everywhere. You mean recently? You mean recently? Recently. So I think that when I'm when I'm thinking about fire, I'm thinking about it as like one, there's people putting fire on the land and how that's affecting it. And then also all of us in a reality on the the West Coast is like dealing with fire every summer now. A managed Uh, process versus a chaos endured. Yeah. And then them being interconnected from removing the managed process. Right. Big time. That's how fire works in your paintings. We also see your sculptural work made out of wood also references fire. I'm thinking of a 2022 sculpture called Nephewishneg. Am I close? Oh, uh, it's an otter. Uh, which is made from a redwood burl uh, recovered after the 2022 Big Basin fire. Big Basin was is a state park north of Santa Cruz. How do you represent fire as part of wooden sculptures, and why was it important to you to use or address fire not only in paintings but in sculpture too? I think for me that they're all interconnected, and I think that when you're thinking about taking care of the land and you're thinking about what happens after, just everything is connected. So for me, I think my practice is also I try to think of it as interconnected in that way, where any material can be open to having these conversations as as a conduit for the conversations. And also, if we were talking about earlier with like lumber and logging practices, those are also so intertwined with kind of maintaining the land, the drought, what's causing these current kind of fire catastrophes, and also what's taking away from the ability to like steward the land in that way. So And then it's also, maybe this is separate off topic, but there's just so many remnants left over from the logging industry. So they take like whatever they're going to use for the sheet goods. And then there's the the leftover byproduct. And it became important for me to like give story to that because we are very much interconnected to like the trees in that area and down here. So in that way, it, it feels like they're all interconnected in my head in terms of conversation. 
one of the things that's wild to me about looking at photographs from the 1870s up the Humboldt and Northwestern California coast is all of that timber industry slag is in those photographs. And I don't mean like some branches on the ground. I mean, 10, 20, 30 feet worth of piled up branches, just stuff waiting to burn, which, which then of course it, it often did. The ICA San Francisco show, I would bet has more wood in it than any show you've ever done. So why, why, why so much wood? Why now? Well, the, the wood I think ties to the previous work I've done in the practice, but also where my studio is situated in Hunter's Point, Bayview in San Francisco is maybe one of the last areas that like gentrification is pushing through san francisco and i think as a result of that there's also like so much detritus and like remnants of you know past and current lives around so i think one is that i gravitate towards like the material of of wood for part of just the ways i'm thinking about things and the other thing is where my studio is situated there's just so so much of it everywhere and it became important for me to kind of especially in that show talk about how the wood, the past histories interconnected with the wood are also related to this kind of act of gentrification and and how gentrification is an, just an ongoing version of settler colonialism in, in my head and in this kind of like idea I'm formulating around the show. There is a huge wall plus more in the exhibition at ICA San Francisco. We'll have images on manpodcast.com that is, I don't know, like a, a giant deep assemblage piece almost entirely of wood with some paint. Are there things, either representations of things or actual things that you've included in that wall assemblage sculpture that reference specific histories related to native life in Northwestern California, settler colonialism, or the more contemporary practices in San Francisco? I would say that there's like some iconography that points to that. If I'm looking at right. the plants and the fish and... So like so like uh, sculptures of salmon, for example. Yeah, those are those are in there. There's also some like you know I have this problem of going. I don't know if it's a problem, but I have this thing where I just go onto like <laughs> eBay or Etsy a lot, Google, and I'll just type in like cowboys and Indians, or I'll type in Indian, and then put shop and see like what little like trinkets and like past things start to come up. And I would say that quite a few of my collection of things that I've purchased over time have started to gravitate into that assemblage. So there's like some like curtains and this photo of Ronald Reagan in this Cowboy and Indians movie that he was in that are in there that maybe point to this like larger history of kind of conflation of indigenous culture, but also like washing over of these histories. So I don't know that it directly points to like the the stuff that I think would point to the area in which my family lives would be like the salmon, the plant life. And then there's other things that kind of point to like this violence and this washing over of violence and how all of those are kind of interconnected. The romance of wagon wheels. Yeah. The wagon, two wagon wheels. Wheel. Yeah. The wagon wheel in there. You know, you and I kind of talked about this prior, but I think there's a lot of thinking about the histories of indigenous people in the United States as this like monolith and this single thing. But if you look at you know, colonization on the East Coast, the timeline is much different than colonization where my people are from. In that, you know, maybe I think they set around like the 1850s, they started to form the reservation up there. But then there's plenty of people that didn't have contact that were high up in the mountains until maybe the late 1870s, 1880s, which is just like, you know, from when I was a kid, two generations away. So you have a lot of people having different stories and connections to the land. So the wagon wheel then kind of just became like an easy marker for talking about that, that westward expansion. And then, and I originally was going to make a wagon, but that didn't fall through the wagons. <laughs> the wheels couldn't support the wagon. So <laughs> metaphor, yeah. metaphor. Yeah. The, uh, yeah, the East coast and West coast experiences are just massively different. I mean, what the process of settler colonialism was much more disease driven in the East than it was in the West, in the far West in California and Southern Oregon, for example, it was brief and spectacularly violent in, in a way that it was not uh, on the eastern seaboard. Not that there wasn't violence on the eastern seaboard. There was. But I mean, uh, the process of European-Americans becoming dominant on the East Coast took, oh, you know, 100, 150 years, longer, really, maybe like 180 years. And in California, it was a generation, like 25 years. Yeah. yeah. And they had those decrees by governors and other things to just like 
essentially go ahead and yeah. kill so many. California's first governor was a guy named Peter Burnett, who within the first party that traveled overland on the Oregon Trail in 1843. Burnett, by the time he becomes governor of California at the end of the 1850s, the first governor of the state of California, he devotes two thirds of his first state of the state address to arguing for and explaining how white supremacy should be established in California and says that it is an official state policy and goal to render Native Americans exterminated and extinct. The process was not subtle. In the last few years, you've started building physical sculptures that exist in your exhibitions as barriers. So these are sculptures that read as gates, like cattle gates or gates that keep cattle out of a place, or just something, whatever that something is, that keeps someone out of somewhere. How did that come into the work? How did how did using barriers and making visitors navigate through barriers to see paintings come into the work? There's a couple different parts to like how I got to there. One is just like maybe it's like how how you start to see people engage with your work over time. Like you have your first couple shows and you're starting to see how people are engaging with it. Another thing is also seeing the barriers that my mom and other folks doing firework were encountering, but I'm, I'm seeing my mom encounter it directly as a, like not being able to access land to put fire on the ground. A lot of family members not being able to access a gathering areas or like traditional food sources because someone owns this land. So if I maybe look at like the Anthony Meyer show, which is the first kind of like imposing something into the space i'm using the cattle gate and barbed wire because it's like those are the things that are most prominent up in kind of which Yurok land that i'm used to seeing and that are kind of like delineating space and showing ownership is the cattle gate and then and then the cattle gate if i go on a slight tangent the cattle gate is also talking about like cattle and that industry in california how much of the water goes to there how that takes away from like sustainability globally, and then also ancestral food sources. So that's one part. And then it's also, I think about, as someone who didn't maybe growing up, grow up going to galleries, I started thinking about like, what is the, the socioeconomic dynamic of like, who goes and views those spaces and who, who has access to purchasing art is largely like folks in a certain social class. And that social class is also very much the people that can make change and are imposing these these kind of ideas around ownership and boundaries and other things. So it became important for me to just like confront the viewer, all viewers, but like a certain viewer that is normally going to galleries with these same dynamics that are affecting people everywhere, which is like this idea of ownership, these barriers around what you can and can't access. So if I look at the Anthony Meyer show, it was completely stopping the viewer so that you're not able to access these paintings in the ran, back. Ran from one wall to the other. Yeah, it did. Except for the salmon were the only thing that were able to cross from like an area where everyone was over to the back. And then there and they was, were wall mounted and they were wall mounted. And for me, all those little parts tied to different conversations that are happening up near the Klamath. And then for the show that I had with Nikel in New York, the, fences just dictate the ways in which you're able to navigate the space but still kind of function in this like carceral like blocking you way and then if i go into the the ica show it functions in the same way and that like so much of san francisco is blocked off by those fences with the green privacy mesh so that they can start doing new builds and then i was also kind of uh, I was interested in, one, how many different fences there are to do the same job, and then also how they each have their own conversation in relation to the area and what's happening. So I think that they're all executed in different ways, but then they kind of like start to function around the same thing, which is just, just putting that kind of tension that we all encounter, or at least I feel when I'm in certain space when there's so many boundaries. Like I'd, I'd much rather be out in nature where I'm not confronted with like, you can't have this, this is ownership, someone... And even these ideas of ownership as being very much like within the last 150 years in Northern California, or maybe 200 years, or in the in the areas that I'm thinking about. So they're very they're very foreign and also like man-made. If you're thinking about like how people have interacted with space for tens of thousands, billions of years, so that's maybe like the short answer of how I'm thinking. 
let me pull out a couple things you said and fill in some current events. As we are taping this, there is literally dam removal going on along the Klamath River, just started a few days ago. And so the salmon you were talking about are, are, are literally returning to where they were for millennia. There is literally nothing more radical in the context of California historically than dam removal. It is the dismantling of everything that has happened historically in California since 1850. It's, it's a really exciting thing to, to see happening along the Klamath. I want to come back to the chain link fences at the ICA San Francisco in a moment, but the fence that was in your exhibition at Anthony Meyer in, in, in 2022 is a fence you have made, and it has representations of plants on it, in it, through it, if you will. You know, you can see through it. Why, why plants and a fence together? I wish I had like a set answer. I think the plants very much, very much function as like the way I've been talking about them. And then they kind of represent this single thing. But then it just also, I don't know, it became important for me to just put both of those things together. But, but the, uh, maybe the interaction with nature or the, the contention with nature that is also existing within, within these ideas of ownership. The chain link fences at ICA San Francisco. And again, we'll have images on mainpodcast.com. Don't only physically funnel a viewer into the space and and around the space, if you will. But I think anybody versed in contemporary art is going to see chain link fences and think of Katie Nolan in the same way that when we see fluorescent lights, the first thing we think of is Dan Flavin. Are there art historical relationships, shared addresses between your use of chain link fence and Katie Nolan's use of chain link fence that interest you? I, I wouldn't say that I was thinking of those in any way. I'm very much aware. And I think that also fences are being used in so many different ways right now too. When I look around like art that's happening, I see a lot of people using, but I think that so many of us are also encountering the same structures, whether they be like ownership or gentrification or how those things are all impacting the different communities and spaces that we're in. So I wouldn't say that I was thinking of Katie's work at all, but I would very much say that I, wouldn't be surprised if we're all impacted by the same things that we're studying at this the material amount. I mean, for me, in, in Nolan works, the, the chain link fences are very often a reference to or used to nod at state power. And I think as you just described your chain link fences, you're thinking about like developer power. And when you said that, I thought, oh, yes, well, there is a relationship between developer power and state power, especially yeah. in the context of an urbanity. The last thing that's in the ICA San Francisco show that I wanted to ask about is kind of the expansion of a move you've made before, and that is having a piece of wood that looks like a tree, like kind of kind of acting as a sculpture, and there are things wrapping around it. In, in a previous exhibition, you had a piece of a, you know, maybe a forearm-sized piece of branch or tree. Uh, and it was wrapped in beads. Here at the ICA San Francisco, a much larger piece of wood that reads like a tree is wrapped in, in other things. So it's a move you've brought back for a second time, and you've done it bigger. What's that move? What is what is it? What value and, and interest do you find in that move and the references within it? So the, the smaller piece that's beaded was a collaboration between my mom and I, and it's actually the yeah. the branch is bronze. And then my mom my mom did the beading. And then on this other one, it, it also connects to my mom and this other one. And that like when her crew's out taking care of the land, they cut down what, are, what we call these twisty sticks. So what's wrapping around them is that like vines and other things have been wrapping around the tree and create these kind of like knots in these ways that it's interacting. So the only thing that I've then done on that is just started to take off the bark. And then within that was kind of just bringing out the, uh, the smell of the bay the bay laurel and for me it's one it's just imposing nature back into the space as like you know prior to development over development this was here so it's placing it into the space maybe not specifically yes somewhat with the bay laurel and then with the beaded bronze work i think it was well if i tell you how i got the i used to do art handling so that that bronze piece isn't actually something that i made it's a cutoff from a sculpture that i was art handling a long time ago and the people who were welding it gave it to me and i'd just been holding on to it for like five plus years and then i was talking to my mom about it and then she's like what if we beat it so it just became a collaboration and 
in that way i i thought that it very much functioned in what i was talking about within the show but also like community and family are so important to me within the practice so it just became a an interaction between my mom and i and a conversation and how that then fit into there and then also the tree within this it also blocks the viewer in some ways which i appreciate in the ica show one in the ica show yeah yeah in that you know maybe people want to be able to step back and interact with the two paintings or the two paintings to the side and you're very much like confronted with the tree being there and also within the show it looks like the tree's dying so then it kind of brings on this other interaction with the viewer and i think for the ica show and a lot of other shows i'm thinking about so many different things in my head and then there's just like a little web that's connecting all of these ideas and that's kind of just like one little piece that's talking about other pieces that are happening there so the beaded work is called to be present i mentioned it's the size of a forearm it's about nine inches tall safe as zeus thanks so much thank you for having me Tyler. Fifty years ago, celebrated San Diego-based artist Eleanor Anton staged and photographed 100 boots on their cross-country trip from Solano Beach to New York City. A new exhibition at the Museum of Contemporary Art San Diego includes the 51 postcards that document the boots' journey. Also on view is work by the collective My Barbarian, whose layered performances continue Anton's spirit of social critique and playfulness. Opening September 21st on view, through February 2024. See Eleanor Anton and My Barbarian at the recently expanded Museum of Contemporary Art San Diego La Jolla campus. Plan your visit by going to mcasd.org. Opening February 15th, the Nasher Museum of Art at Duke University in Durham, North Carolina presents Maria Magdalena Campos Pons, Behold, a monographic exhibition of a visionary voice in photography, immersive installation, painting, and performance. The exhibition spans nearly four decades of the artist's work, transporting viewers across geographies, mediums, and spiritual practices. It's the first multimedia survey of Campos Pons's work since 2007. Maria Magdalena Campos Pons Behold is organized by the Brooklyn Museum and the J. Paul Getty Museum. Welcome back. Next up, Mariam Tagavi. Her work is on view at the Museum of Contemporary Art Chicago in Chicago Works, Mariam Tagavi. Tagavi's work explores perception, often by wielding or adapting Persian calligraphy. The show at the MCA was curated by Bana Katan with Kamala Ganea Basiri. Tagavi has previously exhibited at museums such as Laxart in Los Angeles and the Queens Museum in New York, and Chicago's O'Hare Airport has recently installed a commissioned work by Tagavi in its Terminal 5. Mariam Tagavi, welcome to the Modern Art Notes podcast. Thank you so much, Tyler, for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. I think it's important in talking about the work at the MCA Chicago for people to first understand how a viewer approaches it and views it. So could we start with discussing how you want the viewer to approach and, if this is the right word, interact with the work? I think the, the work usually begins on the outside of the gallery space where people probably read the title. I think reading the title is really important for this show, which is Nothing Is. Well, the title is Nothing Is. And when you get in the space, it's a pretty dim exhibition in terms of the lighting is not as bright as you would expect in the in the gallery setting and when people enter the, the space they notice from what i have seen so far people notice these cutouts on the wall and they get close to it to find out what it is and then they they view these images that are, well, reflections rather than images, reflections that are creating a world. And what they see through the wall is not necessarily easy to identify what shape it is that is giving them that worldview, but they are encountering it without knowing exactly the dimension of it, or even the material of the piece and 
from then on, people tend to walk to towards the paintings that are hanging, and they're seeing the same form getting repeated throughout the exhibition. So what I like for the viewers to do is to get very close to the work in order to see it. Even when they see the hole in the wall, they have to get very close and their eye is touching the wall in order to see inside of it. So you have to be up close to see the work. Even when it comes to the paintings, you have to get very close in order to see the gradation and the different shades that are on the painting, on the surface of the painting. And then there are different other objects in the exhibition that require you to get very close to it and see in detail what is happening. And at the same time, I really want for the viewers to see the exhibition as a whole. So they step back and they see from a distance what they have just experience up close. For example, one of the most clear moments where this is happening is with the arrangement of the paintings and with the hanging of the paintings, where they are all hanging at different levels. And the reason that they're hanging at different levels is that if you stand at a distance from them, you can see a through line going across all of them. And I will say more about the lines in a little bit. But I think this exhibition has a lot to do with zooming in, zooming out, and imagining things that are not necessarily perceptible to the eye. You mentioned a moment ago a specific shape through which the viewer looks and a shape that recurs across Mm -hmm. the exhibition. What is that shape called and why is it important to you? So that shape is called nokte. And nokte in both Persian and Arabic languages is the most essential diacritic. And it is placed either above or below a letter form. And it discerns the sound of a letter from another one. For example, the same letter form, depending on the number of the noktes, and where they are placed on the letter can have six different sounds. And in in the alphabet, it's really important in terms of distinguishing, you know, one sound from another. But when it comes to calligraphy, which is something that I have been inspired by in, in my work, in my previous work, and especially in this exhibition, when it comes to calligraphy, the nokte is drawn from the nib of the reed pen. So it has this diamond shape to it with a small curved angle of one of the corners. So imagine a diamond shape with a curved corner. And when what happens in calligraphy is that this nokte becomes the measuring unit by which you determine the correct and perfect proportions of the letters and the overall composition on the page. So what I am really interested in with the nokta form, especially in this exhibition, is how it is the measuring unit in a system where the perfection of the form is a part of the message. In this exhibition, however, the letter forms are removed from it and you're only encountering these noktes that are always in the form of, well, either a line or they're singular, but they are deprived of the letter forms and they seem to be drawing out or creating these measuring units, but you don't know exactly where and what they're measuring. And in different instances, for example, when I said there are these prisms that are placed inside the wall and you only have these um, noktes to look through the wall, uh, 
those prisms create a complete these are all by the way these are mirrored the the interior of the prisms is mirrored so when you look inside you see this countless um, reflection of the norte and it's a world that you can't quite tell how big what the distance is the relations within it are not quite measurable but when you get to the paintings the the noctes become measurable for example you have five noctes here you have seven over there you have three over here and they're always in this horizon line sort of horizontal format so in the paintings these become measurable but you don't exactly know what they're measuring or where this is that is that the the thing is being measured so this is the form that gets repeated in the exhibition. Yeah, so if textually the Nakte provides meaning or understanding, is part of mm-hmm. your construction that when wielded visually, the Nakte mm-hmm. becomes an address of perception, what the eye and brain can exactly. do and discover together. Exactly, exactly. Yes, it becomes very much about perception and the distance that you have from that object and how you perceive these, you know, whether it's color or line or um, light uh, and play with light and color is dominant in this exhibition, which directly relates to our perception and how our eyes perceive the world. So you've used the Nakti in paintings, both both here and elsewhere, as Mm -hmm. a kind of definition of the space between two blocks of color color which we, Mm -hmm. the viewer, might read as a sunset or a sunrise and Mm -hmm. maybe a watery surface or a grassy land or, Mm -hmm. you know, the earthy part of betwixt heaven and earth, skies and earth. Mm -hmm. What about using that nocte form betwixt in that way do you find intriguing? So, you know, when I was, maybe I'll take a step back and talk about my process, because when I started using airbrush by the way the paintings are made of airbrush when i started using it and i started using stencils or using the stenciling technique to register color it seemed to me that i was able to one of the things that i was really drawn to this technique was that i could treat color like light and i could treat it in this fleeting way that light, for example, when it shimmers on water, where you can't quite tell that there's a block of color here or there because it's constantly changing. So the airbrush and the stenciling was giving me this kind of possibility to build color the same way that light does. And I will say a little bit more about the process in terms of spraying one color when i when i'm registering a stencil or a line of the stencil and then i move it just a little bit less than a quarter of an inch and then i register it again and a part of it is that i'm really i'm not always 100% sure of what exactly this color is going to be like especially when i because When I spray it, I don't exactly know what I have done until I remove the stencil and move it up and I can see what I have done. But the way that I was able to build up the color and have multiple, for example, in this palette, I am heavily focusing on the blue that I have seen on Lake Michigan. I was able to build different types of blue on top of each other and the color in this sense is still light it's fleeting and you can't quite tell where one color starts and the other one ends and i was really interested in that so i guess to go but to get back to your question the reason that i was you know it it, it's something that happened in the process and i really liked it and i kept going at it I've been experimenting with this 
stencil and airbrushing, particularly with Nokte for a year now. And I'm learning so much from it and I and I want it to really give a lot of space and time for it to be revealed in this for this exhibition. So I don't know if I quite answered your question, but it your question made me think of my process. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I I get that because I think that there are times that your work kind of sits between landscape and language in the decorative that mm-hmm. is fusing, that is mm-hmm. that is really, really interesting. And I think an, another example of a work that does that, I mean, you've used Persian calligraphy of Farsi in all kinds of ways for a mm-hmm. number of years. So this is not a new exploration mm-hmm. for you. So in mm-hmm. 2017, for example in a mm-hmm. work called Reconstitution, you mm-hmm. painted the U.S. Constitution in mm-hmm. Farsi mm-hmm. on the exterior of a building. So a mm-hmm. way of addressing discourse around national identity and belonging yeah. and the rule of law. Mm-hmm. So, of course, Persian artists have found purpose in calligraphy and text for far, far longer than, say, European or U.S. artists who kind of mm-hmm. came to text as part of modernism in, in a lot of ways. Exactly. Given that there is this like quite ancient use of text and calligraphy by Persian artists, and it's still interesting, what mm-hmm. about it is still interesting for you? Uh, it's one of those things that I cannot help but be really intrigued by the form of the letter forms and calligraphy. and. It's the integral part of when my aesthetic experience. It's a, a form of art that is readily available, and it's something that has been used in obviously in our education. It was really important to have really good handwriting, and you know, part of it was practicing calligraphy so that's one thing it was it was very much interwoven in our education and at the same time it is a form that is visible in public spaces including you know the ideological slogans all around the city and the country or billboards it is something that most poetry is in is written in some kind of form of calligraphy and there has been a lot of this is saying in its more quote-unquote traditional form and then in a lot of modern and contemporary graphic design calligraphy is still very much a strong influence so I have been experiencing calligraphy in various forms and I am mainly really drawn to the the practice and the form itself. And what really intrigues me is that calligraphy is not just about writing something, saying something, so it means something. It's about how it's written. And the how is where all of this other practice for perfection comes in. So I like thinking about different ways of saying things and making language or making meaning beyond the linguistic meaning making system and incorporating form into it. So for me, calligraphy has a lot of that potential. Well, it's more than potential. It's already doing it. And I think my in in this exhibition particularly, my approach to calligraphy was more of thinking about a system that strives for perfection and using the sort of thinking about that. I don't know if anatomy is the right word, but thinking about the building blocks thinking about the building blocks of this system and taking this into another another world, if we can say, in terms of 
when I'm using it with color, when I'm using it on a larger scale, when I'm thinking about it as a space, when it comes to these prisms. So for me, there's that sort of, I think the exhibition that I've done here is, or the last exhibition, the exhibition at the MCA, is the one where I'm most removed from the form itself, and I'm more interested in the building blocks. As we are taping, you are in Tehran. You are soon to return to the United States. Mm -hmm. And when you do, you will be walking past a giant artwork featuring Farsi script at O'Hare. How did it get there? (laughs) Whose is it? (laughs) Sure. I mean, it was a really exciting invitation from Yonit Bahar and Andrew Saxman, who were working on the O'Hare Terminal 5 renovation project. And I was one of the artists that they wanted to work with. The work that I proposed to the for the O'Hare Terminal was, you know, I was thinking a lot about arrival. And when you arrive to a new country, when you are in a new place, you know, the, the sort of, again, like going back to the idea of distance and how when you are in this new space and a lot of things are going to be very distant from that point on, what what do you want? You know, like, what do you need when you enter? What is the thing that welcomes you? What is the thing that actually gives you some kind of hope? And I was working with, at that time, I was working with talismans a lot. And I will just say the talismans are objects that are believed to possess um, protective qualities. And the talismans that I was researching at the time all were script-based. So there is a branch of talismans that are, these are names or these are words that are believed to have those kinds of protective qualities. And um, I came across this talisman that is actually a an illustration by a 17th century calligrapher and I, I came across it at the Metropolitan Museum of Art. And it is a talisman that is in the shape of a ship. So the words are arranged in a way that they, they appear like a ship. And I found out that it was used by the Ottoman Empire ships as they embarked on these long journeys. They would scribble it. It was like inscribed. It was inscribed on the body of the ships to protect them from the unknown. And I was really intrigued by that. And the names, the arrangement of the names is the names of a very famous myth from Christian and Islamic stories, where seven men and their dog seek refuge from religious persecution in a cave. And they wake up 300 years later. And the the miracle is that they have been protected from time, basically. So the names are arranged in that way, and they appear in the name of ship. So these names are believed to have this protective quality. So I was really intrigued by that and the relationship to distance, to the unknown, but also traveling long distances. So I thought this could be an interesting spell to use for this project. And as I was going through the fabrication process, what happened in Iran was that a young woman by the name of Gina Massa Amini was murdered by the the police in Iran for not wearing her hijab in what is considered the, you know, the appropriate hijab. So her death sparked the movement Woman Life Freedoms and Zendigi Azadi. And I was really hunted by this story, to say the least. And another thing that I was... So basically, Gina's name became the symbol of the movement. And I was thinking about the way that her name is marking a moment, and it's discerning one moment from another in the history of uh, of a country, but also 
one could argue that it is a global moment in terms of the movement that was sparked that is really driven by women. And so, you know, I kept thinking about it and I really wanted to include her name and add her name to this particular talisman. So I traced her name from her gravestone and I included it in in the, the arrangement that I had already appropriated from the original talisman. So now that spell is in the in the airport and it's called spell for a safe passage it is all it's about 24 feet long and four feet tall um, and it's a vitrine so it's also three three and a half feet deep so the the talisman is hanging inside this vitrine it's in golden hues and it is built in a way that when you look inside or when you look at it, you get this kind of infinite echo of the the letters. So you you have to, your eyes have to adjust. There's this sort of optical confusion and it takes a moment for the eye to figure out which one is the actual material and what is the reflection of it. And they also see their own reflection in it as well. Perception, so that is the piece. Exactly. Yes. <laughs> Optical illusion, perception. Exactly. Where in Terminal 5 can passengers slash visitors find it? So it's Terminal 5 arrivals and it is pretty much where, so it's a long hallway and there are different artworks along it, but this one is pretty much at any point you come out to the hallway you will see it. It's hard to say where exactly in Terminal 5 arrival, but it is not very far from the escalator that takes you down to customs. So we will have an image of that artwork on manpodcast.com, of course, and also the Mm -hmm. uh, 18th century Persian work of a galleon you described a moment ago by Abd al-Qadir Hisari from the Mets collection. Mariam Tagavi, thanks so much for talking with me. Yeah, thank you so much, Tyler. It's been a pleasure. That's all for this week's show. The Modern Art Notes podcast is edited by Wilson Butterworth. Special thanks to Steve Roden, who created the sound for the program. The Modern Art Notes podcast is released under a Creative Commons license. Please visit Modern Art Notes for more information. Thanks for listening.